It's on. And now you're awake. You might have to turn it down because I get a little loud. Well, thank you uh, all. It's a pleasure to be back. We were away two weeks in Minnesota, faced the snow, survived, and came back. We have prayed for you. As I said, I'm going to say every time I have the privilege of being in this pulpit that we love this church and we love you. So we're glad to be back. This morning, as you know, we are examining the idea of Christ in all of the Old Testament in our evening services. Pastor John will be preaching this evening, but I'm going to preach a part of that series this morning as we examine the idea of the true conquering king foretold. Let's begin in prayer. Lord Jesus, we seek to understand and to know you across the fullness of time. That you have always been and that your word to the prophets of old foretold your story and the unfolding of redemptive history. As the Apostle John wrote, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that all of Scripture bears witness about you. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, that we may see this truth. For it is in your name, the name above all names, that we pray. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to the little Old Testament book of Zechariah. We're going to be looking at chapter 9, concentrating primarily on verse 9. But a bit of background and context. Remember that Zechariah was a prophet and a priest. His ministry started in 520 B.C. The Jews are returning to Judah from exile in the Babylonian exile uh, captivity. And there is no king. The pressing need is for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt as a place of worship. Cyrus had conquered the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to return to Judah, their homeland. The temple foundation had been started in 536 B.C. after their return from exile in 538. And now some 15 years later, not much has changed. Jerusalem still lays in ruins. The people are discouraged and asking, has God abandoned us? And yet, past history and God's very own prophets had spoken. And Zechariah speaks into this, his prophecy, that a new ruler, a Davidic king, is coming. But he will be unlike other rulers they had experienced. This king, as Zechariah foretells, will be righteous, humble, and will bring salvation to his people, Israel. But just like us today, in the continuing sin and rebelliousness of mankind right up to today, they will reject him, and the Lord's word will be unleashed against them. But who is this king that Zechariah foretells? Are Zechariah's prophecies really about Christ? Or are we in danger of reading into it that which we hope to see? So listen now to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, 
Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Chapter 9 is Zechariah's prophecy of Jerusalem's future and coming king. One who will bring peace. Furthermore, this king will ride into Jerusalem. He is righteous. In fact, he's the righteous ruler, the royal son, foreshadowed in the 72nd Psalm. Listen to this. He will judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. He will crush the oppressor. In his day, the righteous will flourish and peace will abound. He will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Kings will fall down before him and nations will serve him. May the people be blessed in him and all nations will call him blessed. That's who's coming. That's who Zechariah says this new king will be and that he will bring salvation with him. He is also humble as illustrated by riding on a donkey, not on a war horse like what the people expected. Not like the rulers in Rome who came into a city on war horses to subdue and to conquer and to oppress. In the near eastern ancient world, survival was by might. Conquer or be conquered. But this king, he comes to bring peace. Not war. To save. Not to divide. To bring righteousness and justice as the shepherd of his people. One who will feed them rather than the shepherds Ezekiel would condemn. Who serve themselves and devour the flock. But who ever heard of a king like this? What kind of king is this? There had never been a king in the ancient world who was described as righteous and humble who rides a lowly donkey and not a war horse, who could ever fulfill this messianic Old Testament expectation? Only one ever could. It is the one that Isaiah described in the 42nd chapter. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That is why Zechariah writes, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Nor is this the first indication of prophecy of this homecoming. A hundred and twenty years earlier, Zephaniah had declared in his third chapter, and note the parallels in language in intent to what we just read in Zechariah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
Listen to the other prophets of old. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Exactly what Zechariah said would happen. Further evidence for the contention that Zechariah 9.9 is indeed prophetic writing about Jesus. Listen to how the apostles, the very individuals who were taught by Jesus himself, thought and wrote about this very passage. 500 years after Zechariah wrote his words, Matthew in the 21st chapter, John in the 12th chapter, quoted this exact passage from Zechariah as it's being fulfilled in real time. The triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Matthew 21 Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This This took place to fulfill what the prophet Sorry, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. John 12, 12, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus, fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. What only he knew at this point was this was the beginning of the week that would lead to his brutal flogging and death on a crude wooden cross. The cheering of today would end in betraying shouts demanding his death. Who is this King of Glory? What no one yet understood was that this king was coming to conquer the real enemy. Not other men or the political oppression of Rome as the crowds had supposed. Rather the real enemy that dwells within and kills every man and that no man can rid himself of. The enemy of sin. This king king came not to enrich himself but rather to die and to make himself lowly and poor of the state. He came to usher in a radically different kind of kingdom, one the world had never seen or experienced. He came as a lamb, a spotless lamb, 
as the ultimate sacrifice for His people. He would conquer by dying. And He would prevail eternally. His kingdom, as He plainly told Pontius Pilate, is not of this world. And He is about to show how true that is. His weapon was not a war horse, but a cross. And and it is peace that flows from that cross, mingled with His blood. It is why, just before His death, He looked upon those around Him and He said these simple but profound words, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Look around. Now all the great ancient civilizations who warred with one another, costing untold millions of lives and brutal deaths, are gone. Not one survives. No king remains other than the one who came riding on a donkey. An innocent king who came to save the lives of you and me by dying our death on behalf of us. The donkey here is significant. The judges earlier in Israel's history, David and Solomon, all rode donkeys in their coronation ceremonies. The significance of this is not to be lost. The Word of God is spread not by might and power, but in humility. Even at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, Verses 10, we read this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember, this is the tribe through which Jesus' lineage would be traced. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grace, just as Rachel read in the very last book. Remember this verse in Genesis when we get back to that verse. All of this foreshadows the reality and truth of Christ and his kingdom. It is why Matthew in the 20th chapter and 18th verse writes this, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And as Matthew, Luke, and John all wrote, the ancient prophecy of Zechariah was indeed fulfilled as as Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die on our behalf. And so they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But few believed What king conquers by allowing himself to be crucified? And so, when it was apparent that this was not the conquering war king the people wanted, a political savior who would free them from the tyranny of Rome, they put him to death. And having done what men could, they suffered what men must. With a nod to Edith Hamilton for my adaptation of her completely unrelated work. 
2,000 years ago in a little town at the far border of the civilized world of Jerusalem. A transformative new power was at work. Something had awakened in the minds and spirits of men which was to so influence the world that the slow passage of long time, of century upon grinding century, and the shattering changes they would bring would be powerless to wear away that deep impress. God the Father had sent God the Son, and Jesus had been born in the lowest and humblest of circumstances and was about to enter into his brief but magnificent flowering of miraculous spiritual awareness which so molded the world of mind and of spirit that our mind and our spirit are today different. And the stamp of it is written in all the thought and on every heart of everyone throughout the world. In that black and fierce, brutal, Roman-occupied little piece of geography, a spark of white, hot, spiritual energy was at work. A new realization the visible unfolding of redemptive history, what the prophets had been declaring for centuries, was now actually occurring, unlike anything that had happened before. God had come to earth as a man and visibly dwelt among us. The age-old ancient prophecies had been fulfilled, and the world would never again be the same. And yet, in God's inspired world to His people, the arrival of a king who didn't look like a king had been foreshadowed. A type of king whose kingship could only be fulfilled in the true king himself, Jesus the Christ. Think back and let's trace together the strands of redemptive history. The Pentateuch, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, had ended with Moses' death. Another Christ-like figure, a type of Christ, whose mantle had been passed to Joshua. Joshua, of course, in Greek is the name Jesus. So Joshua, too, is interpreted as a type of foreshadowing of Christ. God told Joshua that the book of the law should not depart from his mouth, and he should meditate, it, meditate on it day and night and do everything that is written in it. Of course, no human can perfectly fulfill that command. But one man could, and one man did. Jesus. And He did so perfectly. But these are types. They're shadows of what the coming Christ would perfectly fulfill. The book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death after his having warned the people this terrible thing that we choose today. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Twelve different judges in despairing cycles of apostasy between Joshua and Samuel then ensue. It is graphically and viscerally demonstrating the need for a true and godly and righteous king to lead the nation of God's people. And we read continually throughout the book of Jesus of Judges that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the book ends on an ominous note. In those days, 
There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does this sound familiar? The book of Ruth is next and highlights God's covenant goodness when the people turn back to God and obey Him. The story of Ruth's redemption, a word that will show up 23 times in that book, illustrates God's loving kindness. It's illustrative of the blessing that Christ's redemptive work would bring for us when He came to dwell among us. We, like Ruth, will be redeemed. That's why Zechariah writes that this king will bring righteousness and salvation. Ruth ends with Ruth and Boaz having a child named Obed. And as Ruth 4.17 tells us, Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now you see the direction that redemptive history is taking. This now brings us to the books of First and Second Samuel. Samuel anoints on God's command first Saul and then David as king of Israel. And this inaugurates the start of the Davidic dynasty from which Jesus himself would be born into, fulfilling the very first covenant promises that we discussed a night or two ago in Genesis 3.15. But who is David? He was the son of Jesse, an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. The Lord had regretted that he made Saul king over Israel and selected a new ruler for Israel. In chapter 16, verse 7, we read this, and it's an important clue to what's going to happen in history. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He then looks at every one of Jesse's sons and rejects them all. Finally, they get to David, the youngest, consigned to keep the sheep. He's willing to fight the Goliath, but they laugh at him, for he's but a small youth. He's so small that a normal man's armor and sword are too much for him to bear. And you know the rest of the story. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 7, we read that the Lord made a covenant with King David, one that established that his offspring would occupy the throne of the kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. From David came Solomon, and through the generations, Eleazar, the father of Nathan, and Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, and who is called the Christ. Exactly as the prophets had foretold. Matthew chapter 1 starts with this Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see how redemptive history fits together? Rich swaths of God's kingship, of God's providential guidance of history and events, of God's sovereignty over all things, of the Davidic covenant, fulfillment and further foreshadowing of messianic promise are all evident. This is why the apostles, Jesus himself, 
and theologians all see Jesus the Christ as the center, the fulcrum point of the Old Testament. Because he is. And now the really interesting part is we weave together these strands of biblical history and prophecy. Remember, we're, we're headed into this notion of Jesus, the Savior of the world, riding humble and lowly on a donkey. He doesn't look like a conquering king. He wields no symbols of power, the ancients and even us demand. But as the world would come to know, He is no ordinary king. He is the opposite of what the world expected. Isaiah said this about him in the 52nd chapter. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was, in fact, despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. And as one from whom men literally hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Is this your king? They shouted. How does someone with no majesty about him no imposing physical stature, no attributes, no army, no war horse, no history of conquering others going to overcome the might and power of Rome. Just how is he going to save us? Isaiah prophetically foretells us this king's mission and how he accomplished it. It's not what you think. As many were astonished, his appearance was so marred, so beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Literally, as Isaiah later says, by pouring out his soul to death. This king, this one sent of God, conquered not other men, but the greater enemy hiding in every man's sin. It is by His stripes that we are healed of that which kills us, sin. But for those who reject Messiah, beware. His first coming was as a lamb, a gentle, lowly king riding on a lowly donkey to save His people and destroy the works of the devil to make a way for all who would believe in Him. But His second coming will be very different. He will come not as a lamb, but as a lion. He will, execute, he will return to execute His righteous and perfect judgment on those who reject Him. He will come not in peace, but in judgment. 
and to slaughter his enemies. His patience will have expired. The chance for repentance will be over. The book of Revelation, the final written special revelation given to us, makes clear the stark contrast between then and what will be, between the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, of his first coming, and the soon and very soon second coming. This revelation, this apocalypsis, is the unveiling of the reality and the prophecy of how evil will be dealt with and conquered, of the end of the battle between God, His Son, and His angels versus Satan and His fallen angels. Jesus the Lamb has already conquered sin through His death and resurrection. But the great dragon, the liar, deceiver, accuser, and the great prostitute dares to continue to assault the church, the bride of Christ. The book of Revelation tells us truthfully what will be, and Rachel read it earlier, of Christ's already accomplished triumph over the devil and his works, of the sure establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, of the final movement in history, which we are witnessing, of the things that are to the things that will be. Make peace with this king now. For he is coming with his armies of angels to overwhelm and destroy the devil and his angels and those who would oppose or reject him. And there is no greater force than this coming king. He comes to conquer all those who have rejected his terms of peace and reconciliation. You do not want to be an enemy of the God of everything that is and will be. The book of Revelation tells us that Messiah this comes this time will come not on a lowly donkey, but on a white war horse. Chapter 19 tells us exactly what will happen. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he makes judgment and war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white war horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, He was, remember, in the beginning, the Word, and this Word was with God, and this Word was God. He was from the very beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him and Him alone is life, and this life was the light of all men. And He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the deceiver and his angels will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest will be slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And the birds of the air will gorge themselves on their dead flesh. 
And all those whose name is not found written in the book of life, they too will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is not a king you want to trifle with. This is a king who has condescended with unfathomable patience toward each and every one of us. Now he will come, just as he foretold, as a conquering king, a redeeming king, and a king who fulfills all the covenant promises for us. This is a king who will save all those who are truly his. There is no stopping this king. And for those who are in his, the majesty and beauty of it all will be overwhelming. For us as believers, he comes to fulfill all his promises. We will eat from the tree of life. We will not be hurt by the second death. We will each be given a white stone with a name Christ himself has chosen for us. We will reign with Christ on his throne. We will be given the morning star. We will be clothed in bright garments. Our name will be in the book of life. We will be made a pillar in God's temple. We will live in the new Jerusalem. And we will see His face and His name will be written on our foreheads. And the night will be no more. This Jesus, to whom you and I have prayed to, sung to, worshipped, wondered about all our lives. He will himself hold you and me in his arms and he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall thou be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for these former things will have passed away forever. And you and I will live in the magnificent new Jerusalem together with Christ. And we will hear those blessed words captured in the last chapter of the last book of God's word to us. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Take this invitation from Jesus. If you don't know Him, pray for the faith to see Him as the eternal King that He is. For He is the only one who can save your soul. Lord Jesus, we see now the ancient prophecies and the truth and reality of Your kingship. That You came to conquer not other men, but sin in our lives, such that we could drink the water of life freely and without cost because you paid the full price. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Dismiss us now, Lord, with your spirit indwelling in and among us, thankful for your love and great mercy toward us. For it is in your name that we cry out to you, Jesus, our Savior, Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Amen. So it was that our Lord Jesus on the night.